Welcome to the Woodridge Baptist Church Podcast. For more information about what's happening in the life of our church, visit our website at www.woodridge.org. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning, friends. I'm going to give you a public service announcement. Tomorrow's Valentine's Day. (laughs) Do what you got to do. I'm just saying. Well, this morning we are finishing our series that we've been calling Hostage to the Devil. Uh, I hope it's been a good, uh, helpful series, even if it's been challenging in a lot of ways, and I know that it definitely has. Uh, I'm going to begin in a little bit of a different way today, and I'm going to start with uh, those of you that are married, and this is the audience participation part of the program. Are you ready? Um, You've probably figured out that uh, you're different from your spouse. Is that fair? (laughs) Is that fair? I'm going to some questions and I want some answers from you and we'll be doing this by show of hands and then I want our students to be watching you so that they can learn what's out ahead of them. Okay, here's the first question. Uh, How many of you disagree on what you should do on your vacation? Can I see your hands? So here's what I mean by that. So on the one hand, you're like, hey, we finally have a vacation. What are we going to do? Well, one of you probably thinks, I'm exhausted, you know, and I just want it to be chill and for us to enjoy each other and for it to be calm. Now, if that's you, raise your hand right now. If that's not you, you're probably thinking this, we need to have something planned for every minute of the day that we are on vacation. We are going to be starting with skydiving. And that ain't all we're doing. If, if that's you, I would like to see you raise your hand. Somebody is actually raising both hands out there. Now on this, is, is your spouse the opposite of you on that? Can I see those hands real quick? Yeah, all right. So good. that's actually quite a lot of hands, right? So what do you do on vacation? Here's one. How do we spend our money? Now there's only so much meddling I want to do right now, but let's meddle since we're all together. Uh, Which of you is the saver? Can I see your hands? Which, (laughs) just so you know, and I can't, a lot of you just so you know, I actually can't see a lot of you, but there are parts that I can't because of the the lights in my eyes. Uh, Over here, I saw fingers going the other way. That wasn't the question. So which of you is the saver? Can we see the hands up? Which of you is the spender? Can I see? All right, very good. Are you opposite in that? And all these, everybody's like, yep, 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 yep. Okay. Here's another one for you. Y'all are going to leave today and you're going to bicker is what's going to happen. Feel like my work here is done. Okay, here's one for you. Which of you is the clean freak? Get those hands up. You don't like a dirty house. And you don't like clutter, and there's a difference because, because some people will literally go and wipe the dust and then put a ton of clutter on top of a clean table. Now, that just ain't right. All right, but which of you is, all right, I can't stand it to be a dirty house. Let's see those hands out there. Now, which of you is the sloppy one? Let's see those hands out there. We got to be honest. Fewer hands went up, but I'm thankful for the honest ones out there. 
uh, are you opposite from your spouse in that? Or are you maybe a little bit of the same? Or actually, there's quite a lot of opposites there. Uh, all right, let's do one more. How do you spend your, not vacation, but how do you spend your leisure time? You know, it's just a normal day, right? So you go to work, and then you come home, and you go, we actually have a little bit of time together. One of the things Wendy and I have done over the years is we try to make sure we have marriage time. And that's why it gets to a certain point in the day, and we look at the girls, and we're like, bye. <laughs> we love them, but we've already given a lot to those kiddos. And now it's to make sure that one day we're going to be sending them off. But you know what? We're not sending each other off. And so we want to make sure that when the last one gets out the door, we actually know who each other is. And we only get that by spending time together. Then the question becomes, how do you spend that time? How many of you would say in our marriage, we would probably prefer to spend our leisure time differently? Uh, one might be a little bit more on the active side. You know, we, it's always got to be an activity. We're going to go play sports. Or, or maybe the other is like, no, we need to go see a movie. One's wanting to play sports. One's wanting to see a movie. I'm just throwing that out there. How many of you say, you were kind of different in this one? Is that fair? Let's see those hands if you're different. All right. Now, here's the reason that I, I bring this up. Uh, there's actually nothing wrong with those differences, right? There's, there's actually nothing wrong with those differences. Although, I saw a couple of you look at each other and be like, there is something wrong here, <laughs> and it's you. If you think about it, we're not talking about, we're not talking about sin. We're just talking about some differences here, right? But if we're not careful, those differences can lead you to sin. Is that fair? Uh, if you watch how people will handle disagreements over finances, uh, you, you got to get on the same page. I mean, you're a team, but the next thing you know, you're at each other's throat and all started with money. You see where I'm going with this? It could be the same for any of the examples that I just, how, do you, how are we going to spend our time on our vacation? And there's just never a meeting of the minds. And instead, you turn around and you go, no, I don't even want to go on a vacation with you. You know what I'm talking about. The reason I bring all of this up is because we do have these differences. But some of the, some of the thing is, where do those differences come from? And what we're going to be talking about today is, it's a difficult thing to talk about, but it's an important thing that we talk about. Because your present, where you are right now, is shaped but not determined by your past. Where you are right now is shaped but not determined by your past. Who you are right now is in large part because of where you come from. And it doesn't mean that you don't have control over some things, but it shapes you, it molds you. Uh, some of this is good, just so you know. Uh, you, maybe you were raised in a healthy Christian home. You need to be thankful for that. Uh, your parents expressed a lot of love to you. They gave a lot of support to you. They, they sacrificed for you. If that was your parents, you need to thank God for them today. Seriously. And if they're still with you, if they haven't gone to be with the Lord, you need to tell them that today. Uh, you had great friends also. You had a great community that you grew up in. Uh, you had awesome life experiences from sports to theater to music. Just awesome life experiences. That's good. And maybe you even had a great church. All that is a part of your past, right? And those are good things. You could look at that and say, I wouldn't be who I am without that. On the other hand, there's some things in the past that maybe aren't so good. Uh, dysfunctional homes. Alcoholic parents or parent. 
extramarital affair or affairs that are a part of your story that tore your family apart. Issues between siblings. I know that's hard to believe, but work with me, right? Brothers and sisters fighting, brothers fighting, sisters fighting. Experiences at school that were life-altering. For example, bullying, being bullied. All that is a part of your story. All that is a part of your past. In fact, there's a, there's, there's a study being done right now that's called epigenetics, or a field of study being done right now that's called epigenetics. And it's an, it, it's an interesting field of study because obviously with genetics, you just kind of think of your genes. But with epigenetics, they're actually getting to the research on how your experiences in your life work like an on and off switch for your genetic code. In other words, it makes your genes, so to speak, kind of pay attention to some things more than other things. It doesn't alter the information that's inside of you, but it alters how it processes things inside of you. Some of the studies that have been done have been included on Holocaust survivors and how the impact of them undergoing the Holocaust, it didn't just impact them, it impacted generations beyond them. It's been studied on uh, people that went to war and they get back from war and they're suffering from PTSD. And then they're finding in the next generation, they're dealing with post-traumatic stress syndrome even though they actually never went to war. They're saying that it's in large part because of this, how environmental influences in children's lives, young adults' lives, in your lives, will affect how your genes are expressed, or so to speak, how it releases the information. This, by the way, is why they're saying, have you ever looked at identical twins and you go, they're not identical? I mean, now their information is identical, but they're vastly different people. Well, it's not because of their biology, it's actually about something else. Maybe experiences that were a part of their life. And it can also be affected by negative life experiences like environmental toxins or stress, or abuse, or lack of love. All of these things are factors in making us who we are. So to speak, what that means is we will mirror our family and our culture for better or for worse. We will. And so we have to identify, we have to identify patterns of behavior in our family so that we can identify the patterns that don't fit your walk with Jesus. And once you identify them, you have the chance to actually break these things. And this is what's going to make today a little bit difficult. I'm going to get you into the book of Genesis, and we're going to show that sin can be handed down from generation to generation, and it's going to be really important. But what this also means is, is that we're going to have to take a hard look at our families today. And what the point isn't so that you can say like, thanks, Grandma, when, you, <laughs> when we leave. That's not it. Or that you can look at your parents and be like, oh, how you let me down. That's not really it. But we do have to be honest with what is a part of the flow of our family because the number one thing that shapes you to be who you are is your family. It's your family. Now, what that means for us, me and Wendy, for example, as parents is, is we want to be handing down Jesus as much as we possibly can to our children. And we don't want to just hand that to them in teaching. We want to hand that to them in example. And we want to love our girls really, really well. We think that's important. Uh, but we're going to take this pretty seriously today. And as I'm talking, we're going to get into some areas that might be a little bit difficult to think about. But here's the thing. What I believe is, is that the enemy can take strongholds that exist in families and can literally bolt a family to the floor and hold them back from any kind of blessing that they would receive in Christ because of things that have happened in the past. You know, the enemy doesn't desire your blessing 
you know, in fact, he's called, you know, the prince of lies. He's not going to be there to tell you the truth. And his motive is not to do you any good. But we do believe in Jesus who loves us well. His mercy is here. His grace is real and has the power to break any stronghold that exists in you or even in your family. We just have to know what they are. And that's why honesty is important as it is. And that's why confession is as beautiful as it is. We can call it what it is and we can hand it over to Jesus. Now that said, let's take a look at the Bible. And I'm going to begin in Genesis chapter 12. And uh, today a little bit more text than normal, but I think it's important that you see this because I'm really only going to deal with one family for the interest of time. In Genesis chapter 12, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. It says, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and, I, and you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and I will and whoever curses you I will curse and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And so Abram went as the Lord told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. So if you're 75 years old and think that it's time to quit, you're just getting started, right? I've always looked at this guy in this moment and thought, man, he's impressive. He is impressive because Abram gave up everything to follow God. Does that impress you? Because it does me. He's leaving the place that he's known. He's not doing it when he's 23 years old. He's leaving everything that he has known. Most people would say this dude is leaving a lot of wealth, a lot of stability, and he's also losing his family to follow God. But that doesn't mean that he had his entire act together. In fact, we know that he didn't. If you skip to verse 10, here's what it says. Now, there was a famine in the land. And Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. And as he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. That guy, you know, here it is, Valentine's Day and all. You're just beautiful, girl. I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and then they'll kill me. Well, that took a dark turn, right? Then they'll kill me, but they'll let you live. So here's what he says. So tell them you are my sister, so that I'll be treated well for your sake. By the way, there's a little bit of a turn on her, right? I'll be I'm really doing this for you. I'm really doing this for you. So that I'll be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. And when Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was very beautiful, a beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. And he treated Abram well for her sake. And Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. It doesn't sound great to you. Big deal back then. I mean, this guy is getting loaded up with the things. And all because of her. But the Lord, pivot, the Lord inflicted serious, uh, serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned, summoned Abram. What have you done to me, he said. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife, weirdo? Why didn't you say something? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here she is. He's giving her back. Here's your wife. Take her and go. And the Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything that he had. 
So on the one hand, you have a guy that steps out in a tremendous act of faith and says, I'm going to go wherever you want me to go. And he's like, got to go to Egypt, about to tell a whopper of one. How many of you would say, that's a lot like us? I mean, the good that this guy does, you can't take that away from him for whatever failures that he's got, and clearly he's got them. You can't take, you can't take the good away. The evil doesn't undo the good, but the good doesn't justify the evil either. And basically what he does is he's like, here, here's, here's my wife, sister, yeah, here, you can have her. Not his best moment. Now, let's take a look at another story and let's see if you can find a theme. Look over at Genesis chapter 20. In Genesis chapter 20, it says this, starting in verse 1. Now Abraham moved on from there into the region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. For a while he stayed in Gerar, and there Abraham said of his wife Sarah, she is my sister. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah, and he took her. Does that sound familiar to anybody? But God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, you are as good as dead because of the woman that you have taken. She's a married woman. Now Abimelech had not gone near her. So he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? In other words, they had not had sex with each other. Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And didn't she also say he is my brother? I've done this with a clear conscience and clear hands. And then God said to him in the dream, oh, I know you did this with a clear conscience, so I kept you from sinning against me. That's why I didn't let you touch her. Now, return the man's wife. He's a prophet. He'll pray for you and you will live. But if you don't return her... You may be sure that, that you and all who belong to you are going to die. Is he going to pay attention? Well, early the next morning, Abimelech summoned his officials. And when he told them all that happened, they were afraid. And then Abimelech called Abraham in and said, What have you done to us? Does that sound familiar to anybody? Pharaoh's doing it before. King Abimelech is doing it now. And he goes, How have I wronged you that you brought such great guilt upon me and my kingdom? Like, what did I do to you? For you to play me like this. You've done things to me that should never be done. Weird that this is the guy that's speaking the truth, right? Here you have a prophet of God living like that and a person that isn't a prophet of God living better than the prophet, at least in this moment. Did you catch it? The same thing happens again. And the reason I bring this up is because there's a pattern here. Are you seeing it? There's a pattern in this behavior in the life of Abraham. And it gets passed down from him to his kid. Take a look at another development as we look in Genesis chapter 26. It says, now there was a famine in the land. Lots of famines happening back then, everybody. Are you seeing that? Now there was a famine in the land besides the previous famine in Abraham's time. And Isaac went to Abimelech, the king of the Philistines in Gerar. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while and I'll be with you and I'll bless you. For to you and your descendants, I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father, Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all these lands. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because Abraham obeyed me and did everything I required of him, keeping my commands, my decrees, my instructions, so Isaac stayed in Gerar, good man. 
And when the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, Papa, she is my sister. Because he was afraid to say, she is my wife. Hmm. And he thought, the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebecca because she's beautiful. And the moral of the story this morning is to marry somebody ugly. <laughs> Let's pray. Did you catch this? She's beautiful. And when Isaac had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked down from a window, saw Isaac caressing his wife, Rebekah. Now, how does he know her? Not like that, right? Whoa, whoa, whoa. I thought, brother, sister, that's weird. It's weird. But he's smart enough to go, something fishy is happening. So he sees them caressing each other. So Abimelech summoned Isaac and said, she's your wife. Why did you say she is my sister? And Isaac answered him, well, because I thought I might lose my life on account of her. Does that sound familiar? I mean, same thing as his father in the same city with the same king. What do you think this king thinks about this family at this point? What a bunch of weirdos. And we're not done, by the way. What started with Abraham, that's the father, went to Isaac. You just saw it. That's the son. And then you guessed it, goes to the grandson. I mean, Isaac, by the way, has two sons. They're twins, Jacob and Esau. They don't get along very well. <laughs> that's like saying it mildly. They don't get along with each other. And the reason that they don't get along with each other is because daddy had favorites in the family. That's why they played favorites. And so let's look at Genesis chapter 27. And I'm going to begin in verse 18. Here's what it says. So he went to his father and said, my father? Yes, my son, he answered. Who is it? And Jacob said to his father, I'm Esau, your firstborn. Whoops. Jacob said to his father, I'm Esau. No, you're not. Now, apparently he's having a hard time seeing his son. He's older in age and he just can't identify. Who is it? Right? And he's like, oh, it's Esau. Like he's playing his dad. I'm Esau, your firstborn. I've done as you've told me. Please sit up, eat some of my, uh, my game so that you may give me your blessing. And Isaac asked his son, how did you find it so quickly, my son? And the Lord your God gave me success, he replied. By the way, he just lied to his father's face. And that was the first of many lies that he would tell his dad. But it's also an important point here. It's not just that the sins are generational. You're already seeing it, right? What the father did went to the son. You're now seeing it in the grandson. Are you seeing it? It's that things are getting worse with each generation. It's not just the same thing. It's the same thing amplified. Uh, think about it. Uh, if you were to look at, Gen at Genesis 37, Jacob has 12 sons from four different women, not two women like his father before him. It, things are getting worse. It's getting worse. Jacob also has a favorite son named Joseph. Look at Genesis 37 too. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. Because he had been born to him in his old age and he made an ornate robe for him. How do you think that went over with the brothers? Great. Thanksgiving was awesome. 
right? You know, here, we're going to give him ribs and we're going to give y'all broccoli. That's basically the way that he's treating him. And you probably know what I would prefer by the example. And when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him. And they couldn't even speak a kind word to him. And now look at verse 31. Then they got Joseph's robe, the gift, right? Slaughtered a goat, dipped, it in, dipped the robe in blood. <clears throat> Excuse me. They took the ornate robe back to their father and they said, we found this, by the way, blatant lie. Examine it to see whether it's your son's robe. And he recognized it and he said, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then, jo then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and mourned for his son for many days. All of his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I'll continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. And then the story goes on, but that's enough for us. Are you seeing trends in this family? where there are certain sins of the father that are now passed down to the son and the son kicks it up a notch. He's throwing some extra stuff in the sauce so that it has more pop. You get it? There's an important thing that we need to remember in all of this is that scripture is trying to teach us an important truth that we need to understand the patterns and the sins of our family so that we can identify the possibility of those things in our own life. And some of you can probably think pretty quickly about some damaging trends in your family's life that have seriously impacted you. You could also, on the flip side, probably think of some very positive things that were a part of your life and your family, and you've been the benefactor of that. It's like gumbo. There's a lot of that thrown in there. You mix it up, right? And your family's situation is just like that. We're all the Adams family. There's an Uncle Fester in there somewhere. All you got to do is look. All you got to do is ask. And typically what you'll find is the story. In this last situation, notice the brothers, they played their father, didn't they? They played him. But their father was a player. So they played him, and he had been playing people all along to begin with. None of what they said was true. So did you catch all of that, what they did? Here were some of the generational sins that were passed down. Lying, lying. Mistreatment of their wives. Yeah, let's lie and I'm going to hand you over to somebody else for my own good. Who, who treats their wife like that? They did. And then what a father did, his son went on and did the same. Wonder where he got that from. How about this? Preferential treatment of children that brought about sibling rivalry. Ishmael, by the way, if you just read the rest of the story, Ishmael has to go away forever. Jacob steals Esau's inheritance and has to run away to survive. Everybody's going to kill him. Joseph, as you just saw, got sold into slavery. And just so you know, that was 13 years of slavery and prison for him. 13 years. That's a mess. Is that fair? I mean, that is a mess. But there's a verse that I want you to, to, to put in your notes and something that I want you to lock into your mind in all of the mess. And you find it in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. Because here's what it says. It says, the Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, 
maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and the grandchildren to the third and the fourth generation. I want to give you a thumbnail on what this verse means because it's an important one for you to remember. It's one of the most, it's one of the most, two of the most quoted verses in all the Old Testament, in fact, in all of the Bible. Are these right here. What does it mean? In essence, what it means is a parent's sin has consequences on their children and their children's children and so on. In, in fact, let me give you an example. And I'm trying to be sensitive to this, but we do have to talk about difficult things. Studies have been done on families where divorce happens in the family. Uh, Paul Amato and Jacob Cheadle did a study over a number of years. And what they found was divorce in the first generation was associated with lower education results in the children, more marital discord when eventually they did get married, weaker ties and bonds from child to the mother, a weaker tie with the father, all the way they found to the third and fourth generation. Those relationships were impacted. And by the way, this wasn't a Christian study. It was just a study. As they go to the other generations, they were finding the same trends. Typically lower education, more marital discord. They were finding that the divorce rates in the subsequent generations were higher. And even greater tension in early parent-child relationships were there. So their results suggest, and is what they said, divorce has consequences for subsequent generations, including individuals who are not even yet born. Now again, I'm trying to be sensitive here, but we're also trying to talk about a reality here as well. And I think this is the thing, especially in this verse, that I'm trying to point out. Even though we can, we can identify that sin runs in the family, we even have sayings like this, like father, like, like mother, like the apple didn't fall far from the... We already know those things, right? It just doesn't excuse anything. The verse that I just read actually says this. It really says to the third and the fourth. It doesn't say generation. The Hebrew word is actually not there. But what the reason is, is it's trying to give you a comparison to way that the consequences of sin can potentially work on you and how God wants to work in your life. And you see a difference between the two. You have the comparison. When it comes to generational sin, God's judgment about it is like to the third and the fourth. Not generation, but to the third and to the fourth. But you get this contrast. But his mercy, his mercy extends to thousands. It doesn't stop, in other words. So some of you are probably sitting here this morning and going, I'm thinking about some specific things in my family. It's kind of a mess. And that's okay. We have to think about those things. What I want you to remember from this verse is his mercy is extending to you and there's mercy for you right now. It's there. So there are some distinctions that I want you to make this morning. Sin comes in three, three dimensions. John Mark Comer said it really well. Uh, it's sin that's been done by you that creates guilt and shame. It possibly even creates addiction in your life. That's one possibility. Here's a second possibility. Sin that has been done to you. Some of you do come from broken homes. Some of you have dealt with serious abuse in your life and it's a part of your story. There is mercy for you in this. There's a third type, sin that's been done around you. I was reading an article not too long ago, kind of a famous musician, Billie Eilish. She never looks happy, by the way. 
Billie Eilish, and she gave this interview, I think Vanity Fair, but I can't remember, and she talked about her exposure to pornography as a child has basically ruined her life. That was something that was done around her. But she said it so completely warped her view of relationships and sexuality that it's never not there with her. That's an example of sin done around you. But even that, it doesn't have to have a hold on you. That's what I want you to hear this morning. It doesn't have to have a hold on you. All of it can be broken by the power of God. And here's how. A couple of things I want you to keep in mind as we close. First, I need you to identify generational sins, not so that you justify anything. In fact, if what you find is that there's a pattern in your family's life going back, your heart should break for them, not accuse them. Your heart should break. Identify these things. What are the issues that come back regularly in your family? Do you see any habitual sin patterns in your family? Do you see like weaknesses in your family, like mental weaknesses, emotional weaknesses, spiritual weaknesses, physical ones. You need to be looking into these, these things. Do you find that as you look in your family tree, there are people that have addictions and you go, that goes back nine generations of alcoholics. You need to be asking those questions, even though they're difficult ones. Or you can identify patterns in people's lives that are just flat out of control. And then you see, whoa, that was just like my dad. And whoa, that was just like, that was like my grandmother. And whoa, and not necessarily, again, just for the hard things that you find, but the good things as well. The good things as well. So take a real look at your family. See if you can find any patterns. For example, is your family consistently dealing with financial unhealth? Is your family consistently bound up and, and run by fear? Is your, does your family pass hate down from generation to generation? Is there a history of strife? alcohol, drugs, pornography? Is there a history of rejection in your family where the parents didn't love you the way that a parent was meant to love you? Is there a history of sexual abuse? And again, like I said, I'm trying to be sensitive, but we're also trying to tackle it head on. I can't answer these questions for you, but it's important that you answer them. In other words, what is the spiritual, spiritual heritage of your family from generation to generation? And I remind you of this in Deuteronomy 24, 16, it says, the fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor their children for their father. Each is to die for their own sin. We identify these things not so that we can blame shift, but so that the stronghold can be broken. And with you where you're at, once you identify the things that have to go, you say, it stops now. It stops now. But you can only do that by identifying it first. In other words, Deuteronomy 24, 16 says we're responsible for these things because we've chosen it. We've chosen to follow the pattern of our father. We've chosen to follow the pattern of our grandfather or whatever the case may be. But I want to remind you of a beautiful truth in Galatians 5.16 and all of this. Live by the spirit and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. You have a God that is with you. You have a God that loves you. You have a Holy Spirit that indwells you. He empowers you for every good work and is stronger than any stronghold that exists in you or in your family's line. He can break it down. As 2 Corinthians 10, 4 says, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They are mighty for the breaking down of strongholds. All you have to do is choose it. All you have to do is choose it. So in a moment, you can invite the, the power of the Spirit, literally in a moment, on a Monday, you can invite the power of the Spirit as you're dealing with a situation. You just have to have the presence of the mind to call out on the Spirit of God to say, help me right now because I need you. I need a strength well beyond the strength that I've got. Please help. Please help. 
And we can also pray as Psalm 79, 8 and 9 did. Do not remember against us the sins and the guilt of our forefathers. Let your compassion and mercy come quickly to meet us, for we have been brought very low. Help us, God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Rescue us, forgive us our sins, and do it for your name's sake. That, my friends, is a worthy prayer. And his answer to you when you pray it is yes. Yes. We hope you have enjoyed the podcast. For more information about our church, visit www.woodridge.org.